How? Why? Was all I could say as I shook my head in disbelief and shock. I sat in my office in front of my laptop, reading the headlines with my hands over my mouth. The announcement had just broke on Twitter that morning, where it had been picked up by the Christian news outlets and then circulated by the secular press. A Christian leader had fallen. And now the vultures were circling. I hadn't even been in full-time ministry for a year. Now one of my heroes had let me down. He was a prominent pastor who I'd looked up to and whose writing, speaking, and leadership had been formative in my early years of ministry. The storyline was shocking, disheartening, and disorienting. How could this happen? Why didn't any of his followers see this coming? Was this guy who we thought he was? I felt angry and confused, but mostly just sad. Sad for the guy's wife, children, church, and the thousands of Christians who looked to him for guidance and counsel. As angry and hurt as I was, I also felt sorry for the man himself. I tried to imagine the shame he was probably experiencing, and the very idea made my stomach turn. And then, a thought hit me like a ton of bricks. If this guy, who seemed on the surface to be godly, righteous, wise, and like he had it all together, had a moral failure, does that mean I'm capable of doing the same thing? Years later... I'm still haunted by that question. And after hearing about being affected by and walking with others through dozens of incidents of men having serious, cataclysmic moral failures, I think I have an answer to that question. It's a resounding yes. Yes. I am capable of falling into the same kinds of sin. I am capable of allowing a vice to go unchecked and grow into a major disqualifying character flaw. I am capable of allowing a secret sin to go unconfessed only to have it transform me into a man living a double life. I am capable of tolerating a tiny, harmless habit and seeing it morph into a full-fledged addiction. I am capable of torpedoing my own ship, falling on my own sword, and burning down my own house. And you are too. Every one of us is just a little bit self-righteous. Even though we probably never say it out loud, there's something in our proud, hypocritical hearts that actually takes some sick delight in seeing another Christian brother fall. Our digitally connected yet relationally detached culture specializes in canceling and calling out, which certainly doesn't help. In our fervor to assign blame, demand accountability, and decisively cancel and call out those who have hurt, disappoint, or let us down, We so often forget something about the state of our own brokenness. Everybody has a vice, a stubborn, resistant sin that you find yourself struggling against again and again. The Bible calls it an easily besetting sin. See Hebrews 12, 1. This is the area that, for whatever reason, you have a weakness towards and in which you find yourself continually tempted. Superman had kryptonite. Achilles had his heel. Moses had his temper, Samson had his sexual addiction, and Simon Peter had his big mouth and an apparent problem with impulse control. In fact, all of us are only a few bad decisions away from giving in to our vice and destroying everything we care about and hold dear. We all have that potential.
Welcome to the Committed Masculinity Podcast, a limited series that explores the issues and challenges facing Christian men who are serious about Jesus' invitation to be a disciple. On each episode of the series, we will review the content of each chapter of the book, Committed, Biblical Masculinity, and then discuss the issues of each episode with a special guest. On today's episode, chapter four, Conquer Your Vices, The War Within, Self-Deception, and Kryptonite. A special guest, Mike Lee. don't just have a vice. We have a part of us that truly loves giving into that vice. If we're in Christ, we've been made spiritually alive. We've been forgiven of our sins, regenerated, and we've been given new desires to do what's right. But we have to be honest with ourselves. There still exists within us someone else that doesn't want to please and obey God. There's this other guy that lives in me. I don't like him but he's still there. I have a discipline of starting my mornings in prayer and spending time in God's word. I deeply want and earnestly desire in my heart of hearts to spend time with my Savior each morning in prayer and reading the word. But when my alarm goes off, there's a part of me that couldn't care less about that and just wants to sleep. That's the other guy. This other guy is selfish. When my wife and I get into a disagreement, all he wants is to win the fight at all costs. The other guy is greedy. He never wants to be generous with money, time, or the things that God has blessed me with to help others. The other guy is impatient and only wants the path of least resistance and greatest immediate pleasure, especially when it comes to sex. I hate him. I actually want to kill him. But yet, he's still there. If you think I'm being dramatic or unbiblical, let's go to God's word for a moment. The Bible doesn't pretend or paint an idealistic picture of what it looks like to live with indwelling sin. The Apostle Paul brilliantly describes what it feels like so often to live the Christian life in Romans chapter 7. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Romans 7, 18 through 19, NLT. Does that sound familiar? Does this not describe how it feels many days to try to obey and follow Jesus? Whether we admit it or not, these two selves, our true nature in Christ and our old nature of the flesh, are both in us, working against each other. And if we let our flesh win out and control us, we will be led to a path of destruction and death. Letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. Romans 8, 6, NLT. So how does a young husband, father of three, and faithful member of his church destroy his marriage and Christian witness by having a one-night stand with a co-worker? How does a pastor slip into alcoholism and lose his job and ministry by getting a DUI? How does a successful Christian entrepreneur get busted for fraud, embezzlement, and unethical business practices that could land them in prison. Usually, these kinds of things don't happen overnight. Everybody has a story that helps explain the choices we make. 
But I think I can say with some confidence that there was probably a certain point for each of these guys when they stopped fighting and simply gave in to their flesh. How does that happen? How does our sin nature, our flesh, the other guy, win and gain control in our lives, leading us to death and destruction? Stage one, denial. When I was 11 years old, I was exposed to pornography for the first time. Like most 11-year-old boys, I didn't have the emotional or psychological maturity to understand what I was seeing. The only thing I knew was that I was deeply ashamed of what I'd just seen, and at the exact same time, I decided that the naked female form was the most beautiful thing I'd ever beheld. I couldn't explain it, but I felt like I had to see more. Even though I felt dirty and ashamed, I was hooked. Over the course of the next 13 years, I battled a serious sexual addiction. Through pictures, videos, magazines, and more, I fed the monster that was always lurking inside. Even as I had significant experiences in my faith and truly responded to Christ in profound, genuine ways, I never experienced true freedom in this area of my life. As clearly as I can see the seriousness of my sexual addiction now, If you'd asked me as a young man if I had a problem with porn, I would have answered no. And in a sense, I would have been telling you the truth. I didn't have a problem with porn. I had an addiction to it. Even though I couldn't remember a time since puberty when I was free from the defilement of pornography, I still was in denial that it was an issue at all. I used words like struggle or temptation to describe it, and sometimes I would even vaguely ask for prayer from other guys during prayer time in youth group, but I never admitted to anyone else, or even to myself, the nature or intensity of what truly was an addiction. According to psychologists, denial is a type of defense mechanism that involves ignoring the reality of a situation to avoid anxiety. We often use defense mechanisms to help us cope with feelings we don't like. In my own life, I used denial to avoid facing the reality that I had a problem with porn because I didn't want to experience the feelings of shame, guilt, and pain associated with acknowledging the facts. I thought that if I kept my sin hidden and pretended like it wasn't there, that it'd eventually go away on its own. And if it didn't go away on its own, no one else would ever have to know but me. But that's not how sin works. The Bible often uses the analogy of yeast or leaven, see 1 Corinthians 5, to explain the work of sin in our lives. Just like a tiny bit of yeast can cause an entire lump of bread to puff up, so a little bit of sin has a drastic impact on our lives. And just like yeast, sin spreads and grows. If we make a practice of giving in to the desires of our flesh and the sin that so easily besets us, we end up training ourselves over time and forming powerful, destructive habits. And the longer we deny that these habits exist, the more powerful they become. You can't just ignore it and deny its existence. Sin grows. Stage two, downplaying. The more we give in to a sinful behavior or practice, the more it grows and the harder it becomes to deny So, to help avoid the feelings of shame, humiliation, pain, and embarrassment, we minimize the seriousness of the sin. As it continues to grow, we finally admit to ourselves, yeah, maybe I do have a struggle with blank, 
But it's not that bad. Maybe we've graduated out of denial because we got caught in our sin. Our wife discovered our internet history. Our brother-in-law watched us have one drink too many at a family wedding. Our coworker witnessed us explode in a fit of rage and cuss out a subordinate on the job site. We can't deny it anymore. It's a problem. But instead of getting honest about the severity of our sin, truly repenting, seeking accountability, and finding healing in Jesus so that we can walk in victory, unfortunately, some of us choose the path of downplaying the problem. Just as denial is a form of self-deception, downplaying or minimization is a self-deceiving defense mechanism we can use to try and excuse, rationalize, or decrease the significance of behaviors or habits. When we downplay the severity of a sinful practice or habit, we're simply trying to protect something. It could be we're trying to protect our pride. Nobody wants to get caught with their pants down. So we create a narrative that repaints reality and downplays an addiction into a one-time lapse of judgment or minimizes a serious character issue into us just having a bad day. It could be we're trying to protect those closest to us. We say things to ourselves like, if they really knew how bad it was, it would hurt them so deeply. So instead of admitting the severity of the situation, we make it seem less than it actually is. It could be that we're simply afraid that if we get honest with ourselves, God, and those around us about the reality of our sin, the control of our flesh, and just how bad things really are, that they would never love us or want anything to do with us. And so we do what humanity has been doing since Genesis 3. We hide and cover our nakedness and shame. Stage 3. Duplicity. Duplicity simply means that we're two-faced. We have a side of ourselves that we show in public, and then there's who we really are when no one else is around. We've gotten so used to saying yes to the demands and desires of our sinful flesh that our two selves, our true nature in Christ, and our old nature of the flesh, aren't really at war anymore. Our flesh is in control. The other guy is driving the ship. Our sinful nature calls the shots, and we go along like a subservient slave. But nobody needs to find that out. And so we become really good at hiding. We learn to manage the sin, mask the brokenness, and hide our shame. We learn how to hide behind religion or sounding churchy. We learn how to hide behind our accomplishments and success. We learn how to hide behind being perceived as the cool guy, the macho guy, or even the funny guy. A quick personal aside, for myself and for a lot of other guys, humor can quickly become a mask worn to protect ourselves from rejection. So many of us distract ourselves from the shame and pain of who we really are by using the masks of who we hope we're perceived to be. We feel safe behind our mask. Taking off the mask feels terrifying because it means we can't hide if we're found out, attacked, or rejected. We may be admired or even loved for who others see us to be, but it's not who we truly are. We're walking on a tightrope. It's exhausting. But more than anything, it's dangerous. It's a dangerous game living for the flesh while simultaneously attempting to make it appear that we're walking with Jesus. 
Stage four, destruction. Eventually, one of three things usually happens when we walk down the path of letting our flesh take the driver's seat. One, we get exhausted with walking the tightrope of a duplicitous life and completely give ourselves over to our sin. Two, we fall off the tightrope of a duplicitous life and have our sins exposed. The Bible makes it clear that there are consequences for letting our flesh control our lives. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 NIV. But it doesn't have to be this way. There's a third option that doesn't involve falling to our own destruction. Three, we get off the tightrope. We take off the mask, believe the gospel, and get vulnerable with God, ourselves, and others. Will there be pain involved in taking off our mask, getting real, and confessing our sin? Absolutely. Will everybody in our life respond with compassion, grace, and love? Nope. Some will judge and walk out on us. But the pain of keeping sin hidden and not dealing with our vices is far worse in the long run. My prayer for every man listening to this book is that we'll never get to that point. I pray that none of us will allow our vices and sinful flesh to control our lives and lead us to destruction. But an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. We can avoid the four stages of denial, downplaying, duplicity, and destruction by addressing our sin head-on and getting busy killing our flesh. Getting butt-naked honest. In order for us to conquer our vices and live in victory over the sin that so easily besets us, we've got to practice getting vulnerable. Vulnerability takes guts, though. It's like getting emotionally and spiritually naked. Seriously, it can feel that shameful to a lot of men. Vulnerability is the state or quality of being exposed for what we really are to the possibility of being attacked, harmed, or rejected, either physically or emotionally. I actually think vulnerability is what most guys are afraid of. I've met dudes who have had deployment and combat experience, guys who have rushed into burning buildings, and men who wrestled dangerous armed criminals to the ground. And many of them are more terrified by the thought of talking about their feelings or confessing their vices. When I was in my mid-twenties, Jesus got a hold of my life. I had received Christ as a teenager, but never had learned what it meant to say no to my flesh. As a consequence of letting my flesh control me, I let an unchecked sexual addiction grow through denial, downplaying, and duplicity until finally I was teetering on the edge of destruction. I made some incredibly foolish decisions that could have spelled disaster for the rest of my life. But God, in His great mercy, had a different story for me and mine. Hebrews 12.6 says, The Lord disciplines the one He loves. He loved me enough to let me feel the pain and see the consequences of my sin. That pain drove me to get help. But in order to get help, I had to get honest. I had to get naked. It started with me getting honest with myself. My sin took me further than I ever intended to go, kept me longer than I wanted to stay, 
and took from me more than I ever intended to give. And I had no one else to blame but me. Getting real with myself and admitting that I had a genuine problem was terrifying. I had to admit the truth, but it was liberating. I then had to get honest with God. The truth is God already knew the mess that I'd made. I knew intellectually that God already knew, but in my pride, irreverence, and hardness of heart, I had acted as if what I was doing didn't break his heart. Honesty with God simply meant confessing my sin and seeking after true, genuine repentance before the Lord. I had to ask the Lord to help me want to change. I had to humble myself and pray a real prayer of repentance, not just slapping together an I'm sorry prayer that I didn't really mean to alleviate guilt. The book of James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. James 5.16 Confessing my sins to another Christian was undoubtedly the most terrifying part of this whole process. I remember the first time I honestly confessed to another brother in Christ my sin. I was so nervous, my voice was shaking, and I couldn't look him in the eyes. But he listened graciously and showed me unbelievable grace. He didn't shame, judge, or condemn me. Instead, he prayed with me and became my brother. He started holding me accountable, asking me about my purity every week at church. It was like I had a knapsack full of bricks taken off my back. What's your kryptonite? As I've shared a bit of my story, I think you've probably already figured out the sin that so easily besets me. Through God's grace, I've found victory and freedom over this vice, but I still have a weakness towards it and frequently battle my flesh in the area of sexual sin and lust. I have to continually be on my guard. I have to seek accountability, set up guardrails, and every day bring this struggle of sexual purity before the Lord. But maybe that's not your kryptonite. You may not struggle with what I've struggled with, but you've got something. Everybody does. Yours could be pride or self-righteousness, anger or rage, drunkenness or substance abuse, insecurity or identity issues, gossip, slander, or a critical spirit, rebellion, cynicism, or distrust of authority, strife, or conflict, cowardice, or fear, materialism, or greed, laziness, or gluttony, dishonesty, deceit, or exaggeration. The truth is, we're all capable of falling prey to temptation and giving control to our flesh in any or all of these areas. It may feel safe to deny or downplay your vice and put on the mask, but the truth is, You are strongest spiritually when you're the most honest with yourself, others, and God about your weaknesses, inconsistencies, and struggles. Walking in victory. When we experience God's grace, deliverance, and forgiveness in an area of sin, it's liberating. When we finally take steps towards freedom through honesty, repentance, and confession, we find ourselves coming alive spiritually in ways we never thought possible. But after we've experienced that initial freedom, it can become so easy for us to fall into a kind of spiritual triumphalism that memorializes our deliverance without reminding us of the necessity of staying in a place of freedom. Walking in victory is a daily practice, not a one-time event. 
And sometimes it feels deeply unspiritual because we must deal with the nitty-gritty aspects of our personhood and daily routines. Walking in victory means that we have at least one trusted brother in Christ who we are willing to get butt-naked honest with. Just having an accountability partner on paper isn't enough. We have to actually be honest with him. This is the guy who gets a report of your internet activity. This is the guy you text when you're having a bad day at work and you need prayer. This is the guy who prays for you, listens to you, fights alongside you, and is willing to straight up call you to the carpet when you're being sinful, selfish, or self-deceptive. Walking in victory means identifying our triggers. A trigger is best defined as a catalyst that makes a person need something to make them feel better. Catalysts can be many things, including both emotional and physical discomfort, either short-term or long-term. Depression, anxiety, loneliness, boredom, stress, shame, anger, and any other form of emotional or psychological or even physical discomfort can easily trigger a person's desire to escape, avoid, and dissociate. Basically, This means that there are certain things you will experience or have happened to you on a daily basis that will make your flesh want to run to your vice instead of the Jesus and the community he's put around you. Stress can make you want to have a few drinks too many. Loneliness can create a desire in you to watch porn. Insecurity can cause you to want to exaggerate and be dishonest about your success. Successfully walking in victory over our vices means that we learn when we're most susceptible to temptation because we recognize these triggers. And when we're having a bad day, we're lonely, we're insecure, or we're stressed, we call a timeout to assess the situation before we do something we'll later regret. It's on the bad days when we pick up the phone and call a brother to ask for prayer instead of driving to the liquor store. It's during the lonely times when we hit the gym or we go on a jog around the neighborhood instead of sitting on the couch alone at the house. It's when we're feeling insecure that we reach out to our wife and tell her how we're feeling instead of flexing on Instagram. Walking in victory also means we admit what we can or we can't handle. There are so many shows, movies, and Netflix series that I've had to pass on over the years that other Christians I know really enjoy because I just can't handle them. Another brother may be able to hit fast forward on the remote during an inappropriate scene or cover their eyes, but for me, that's just too much of a temptation. I can't have the YouTube, Instagram, or Twitter apps on my phone. I have covenantized internet accountability software on all my devices that sends a daily report to three separate accountability partners, and one of those is my wife. Even in my ministry position, I'm never alone with a member of the opposite sex that isn't my wife. No car rides, no coffee meetings. And any work-related meetings happen in places where others are not present. Is that a bit overkill? For some folks, perhaps. But I know the darkness of my own flesh. There are some things I just can't handle. I don't need things in my life that will lead me down a path of temptation and make it easier to sin. Being vulnerable, transparent, and honest with God, ourselves, our brothers in Christ, and our wives is exceptionally humbling. Sometimes it's downright embarrassing, but it's freeing to know that you've got nothing to hide. It's deeply restorative to be fully known and loved for who you truly are, 
not who you're trying to appear to be. The deliverer we need. Conquering our vices and walking in victory takes work. It takes commitment. It's painful and sometimes deeply humiliating. But here's the good news. If you're in Christ, even in your struggle against your flesh and vices, your acceptance from God doesn't come from your ability to keep the rules. In Romans 7, after the Apostle Paul describes the inner struggle we all face as Christians between who we are in Christ and our sinful flesh, he cries out in a way that feels quite familiar for any of us who've ever felt defeated in this battle. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Romans 7, 24, ESV. He uses the word wretched to describe his humanity. That word just sounds nasty, but it certainly describes how it feels sometimes when we're losing that battle against the flesh. It implies exhaustion, weariness, and failure. And anytime we try to please God under the principle of the law, where we establish our identity, worth, and acceptance in the eyes of God through our rule keeping, it will 100% of the time lead us to a place of exhaustion and failure. This kind of legalism will always bring us face to face with our own wretchedness. And so often, we either deny it and become self-righteous, or we despair and give up on following God. But I love how Paul answers his own question in the next verse. Thank God the answer is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 7.25 NLT. The answer is in Jesus. It can be really easy for us to define ourselves by our struggles against our vices. But as soon as we look to Jesus, we have something to thank God for. In looking to Jesus, we understand that we've received God's love, unmerited favor, forgiveness, kindness, and acceptance because of His work, not because of how good we are at keeping the rules and not sinning. At the same time, Paul doesn't deny the struggle against our flesh. See the second half of verse 25. It's still there and will probably be there all of our lives. But we can experience new levels of freedom when we look at Jesus in the midst of our struggles against our flesh, when we realize his great love for us in spite of our sinfulness, that motivates us to want to obey him out of a heart of love. It motivates us to say no to our flesh when it demands for us to serve our vices. As believers, there will be a constant war in our inner lives over sin, but we must be willing to fight that war by looking at Jesus, saying no to our flesh, putting our sin to death, and choosing lifestyles of joyful obedience and trusting surrender. The good news of the gospel is that if we're truly born again, our victor, King Jesus, has already won the battle. It's now simply a matter of us applying that victory and choosing to walk in freedom. Are we walking in freedom? Are we living in victory? Or are we still choosing slavery to our sin and flesh? friend, Pastor Mike Lee. Mike Lee, how you doing, man? I'm great, man. Well, it's good to see you. How are you? I'm wonderful. As, a, as wonderful, always. Wonderful. As always, yeah. It's all, I'm always better when I see your beautiful <laughs> face. 
So, and people can't see your smiling, beautiful white teeth, but they're no, there. No, they cannot. So. Praise God. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so introduce yourself. Tell us a little about you. Who is who is this Mike Lee? Uh, so Mike was born in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, 59 years ago. And uh, son mm. of a cop, lower middle class kid. Grew up there in Memphis, uh, played sports, uh, then fell a call to ministry in, in high school around my senior year. Uh, pursued that calling, went to Christian college, uh, got a bachelor's degree, and then um, worked on a seminary degree, have a master's in divinity, was a Southern Baptist uh, pastor. Uh, for, hey, oh. Yeah, there we go. For but you still raise your hand in worship, so that's pretty amazing. Uh, God, we serve a big God. God so. has uh, delivered me from Southern Baptistism, <laughs> and uh, I am now uh, <laughs> free from that bondage. No, uh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm very grateful for that heritage. Um, you know, I was born, raised in Southern Baptist life, and everything. Uh, very, very grateful for their commitment to the teachings of Scripture. And uh, how that shaped me in a lot of ways. Been married for um, 39 years, um, and um, uh, which shows I have an incredibly patient, <laughs> persevering, long suffering wife. Um, three adult children, all three married, uh, all three uh, live in the Middle Tennessee area, uh, and I have four grandchildren, and uh, now currently serve as. One of the pastors at the Experience Community Church, and uh, also I'm the director of what we call our Minister and Training Program, which uh, kind of helps to uh, populate um, campus plants as well as openings within our church with uh, men and women who uh, feel a call to ministry, who are serving faithfully as volunteers, and who come on board to commit to a year of training and experiences to prepare them for full-time ministry. That is awesome. So being from Memphis, best Memphis barbecue, is it Rendezvous or is it Central Barbecue? Yeah, well, Rendezvous is known for their dry ribs. I'm not a, a huge dry rib guy, so it's definitely yeah, I'm not Central either. would be uh, top. Over that. Okay, good. Good. The favor of the Lord is upon you. Uh, <laughs> it's amazing how food can bring us together. Or something, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Hey, so you had uh, quite a hand on this book getting to the guys in our church. So thank you for that. You read through it uh, a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the reasons I asked you to read through it is number one, I I trust you a lot. I look up to you a lot. You're a very wise man and you know the word. And um, I was particularly interested in your thoughts on this chapter um, because God has given you an amazing testimony in this area. So would you be comfortable with just sharing a bit of your story? Yeah, thanks, Josh. Um, and again, as I share it, you know, I share it uh, with a, always a sense of uh, brokenness over the story, but also gratefulness for uh, our redeeming God who truly does uh, take the bones that are broken that can now rejoice. So um, came to faith around nine years of age uh, there in Memphis, at Southern Baptist Church, but Around that same time, maybe a year or so after that, was exposed to pornography. Um, had also been kind of exposed to some weirdness when I was uh, in elementary school. Um, you know, just a young man exposed me to some sexual things and uh, on a personal level that um, just kind of already began to bend my mind in some different ways. And, you know, it was almost like in the same way in which 
Jesus saved me, it was almost like the, the devil said, well, we're also going to plant some, some tares in, in that wheat. And, and mm -hmm. so, uh, in that exposure to pornography, um, you know, when I got into high school, um, was a popular kid in school, popular athlete. Uh, and, uh, so, you know, started doing some things that didn't honor the Lord. And, um, some before my senior year in high school, recommitted my life to Christ, which is a very Southern Baptist -y thing to do, by the way. <laughs> and, um, but part of that recommitment, man, I laid down drugs, alcohol, cursing, just all kinds of things. One thing I did not lay down though, was the pornography lust issue. Uh, married my wife and uh, thought that that would take care of it. Obviously it did not because it was not a, a sexual issue. It was a heart issue. And, um, and so I uh, went into full-time ministry and always had this limp in my mind. And I was a binger and purger kind of a guy. You know, I could go for months without ever once looking at it. But once I would look at it, it, it would consume my mind and everything. Well, fast forward, you know, again, and, and back to the binge and purge. Uh, when I would purge, I would cry out to God, ask him to forgive me. And I know he, I know he did. But the one thing I would never do, Josh, is talk to someone about it. Um, because of shame, guilt, uh, the accusations of the devil, the enemy who would say, oh, once you say something, you're going to have to leave ministry or once your wife found out, you know, da, 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 da. So, uh, again, fast forward to six, you know, at the time of this podcast, six years ago, uh, I uh, had to resign uh, a 14 year pastorate uh, due to sexual sin uh, and acting out physically on the sexual sin. Uh, I, w I had become a skilled liar, been able to hide it really, really well, such that uh, every, from my wife to my adult kids at that time to uh, the whole church, other than the, the person with whom I was in the relationship with, um, no one had a clue. And um, mm. uh, obviously uh, led to uh, a lot of... Uh, again, God graciously broke a lot of bones, but uh, also allowed me to bring some sin to light so that um, the process of healing could occur. Uh, did pastoral counseling. It was counseled for a weekly for a year. My wife and I were counseled weekly for a year. I was out of the ministry for three years working in the secular world as far as, far as out of the vocational ministry. But all that time, God began to rebuild me, repair me, uh, and I believe to set me free from uh, the bondage of pornography and from the sexual sin so that, you know, by God's grace, as I'm uh, recording this with you, that um, I, I, I do feel um, very confident saying that God has delivered me from um, that bondage. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm so, so, so grateful for that. Praise God. And thank you so much for, for sharing that. I know there's probably a lot of guys listening to this that have, battled that struggle um there may be some guys listening to this that are in a the throes of a full-fledged addiction that they have never spoken to anyone about they've never reached out to anybody else to confess it or to seek accountability for it um why do you think that vulnerability and accountability why is that so difficult for so many guys you know, I'll give you the spiritual answer first. In John 3, Jesus says that people love the darkness. And, mm. you know, when you come to the light, it's painful. It's uh, it's humbling. 
it's in some ways it can be humiliating, which it was for me. It can sure. bring not only personal shame, but shame upon your family, upon the people that you believe are closest to you. It's, I mean, being exposed that way is, is an incredibly, uh, gosh, it's, it's just, it's hard, man. It's, it's incredibly hard. Yeah. So I, I think there's that spiritual thing of, you know, and, and loving the darkness. I mean, let's face it, you know, there are sins. If, if it caused us true pain and, you know, it, we wouldn't do a lot of it, but at least in our mind, we, we get fooled into believing that, uh, this is the way I derive either self-esteem or pleasure, or uh, it's the only way I can keep my life together. I mean, it's just all these lies. So, um, yeah. and, and then, you know, we've seen people come forward with stuff and we've right. seen, you know, the world and even the church attack them and, and mm -hmm. discard them and uh, again, humiliate them. And, you know, let's bring that, you know, 17 year old girl up who had sex and has admitted it. Oh, she's got to confess it to the church. And, you know, yeah. and, and, and you got, you know, men who cheat on their wives or who, uh, you know, are slanderous or gossipers or whatever. And they're not once, you know, they're sitting there with stones to throw. And we see that and it's like, yeah. dear God, I'm not going to make my sin known. I'm not going to bring that up. Sure. So I think some of it is not just our own, issues and we love our sin and the accusations and the things, but, you know, we've seen a church culture that, you know, it's been said, you know, we're the only army in the world that shoots our wounded and, and we've seen that. Yeah. And, uh, so, Absolutely. um, anyway, that may be some of the things I don't know, but that's some. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I mean, I think in my own story, um, the hesitance, I think to get real and say to someone, Hey, this is who I really am this is what I'm really struggling with. You know, there's always this fear that if someone saw the real me, they would reject mm -hmm. me or they wouldn't want anything to do with me or I'm going to disappoint them or let them down. Mm -hmm. And I have a couple men in my life that, um, man, they get my covenant eyes reports and I'm texting those guys and I'm struggling or, and what have I've just been so overwhelmed with over the years as I've, get into the habit of practicing accountability and vulnerability is when I reach out and say, Hey, I need prayer. I'm struggling for them to respond instead of with shame saying, Oh, nasty, nasty. Well, look at Josh. He wet his pants again. You know, like he's some child, man, I love you. Thank you. I'm here for you. Let me pray with you. Let me pray for you. You know, and even in my own marriage, being able to have a supportive spouse that, you know, um, it's kind of a funny story. I'll tell you this real quick before we get into the next question. Um, I had a guy at the end of service this week come up to me and he asked for prayer and he said, I just read this chapter in the book and he goes, I have never told anybody, but I'm addicted to online pornography. Mm. And he said, and this week I reached out to accountability partner. I got signed up for covenant eyes and I told my wife, man, praise the Lord. And, um, man, my jaw dropped open cause I was like, oh, praise God. So we prayed and then his wife came up, and this is the part that I just – I started getting choked up. She threw her arms around his neck, and she squeezed him, and she said, I'm so proud yes. of him. And I think there are so many of us as dudes that think we're protecting our wives, and they're going to respect us more if we keep our darkness and our vices secret and hidden. But the reality is just the opposite. Like She was proud of him because he was man enough to go, 
here's my struggle. Here's my vice. Help me with this, you know? Yes. And I think in that, you know, and again, let's be very, very honest. Not every wife would respond that way. Sure. Sure. And and so, you know, I think it's real important to say, especially guys who are listening going, you know, if, if we do this, you know, it may not be sunshine and roses. It it could be rejection, but I've, I've got to believe that if God is at work in our hearts, he's already preemptively at work in our wives' hearts. And, and mm-hmm. that if he can change my heart to the place where I want to reveal and um, let God allow me to bring the sin to the light, he's working in my wife's life as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So in, in the book, we talk about four stages um, of kind of dealing with a vice. And the first is denial, second is downplaying, the third is duplicity, and the fourth is destruction. Um, and and I was really tapping into your Southern Baptist heritage, trying to get an alliterative. Uh, a plus. You know, for, a plus. <laughs> thanks, man. Uh, so, like, did you see that play out in your story, or, or maybe have you seen them play out in the story of other people? I mean, I've definitely seen that play out in my story when I wasn't getting real with, with my struggle. Sure. Just real quickly, just for your listeners who may not have the book yet, you want to just quickly like one sentence, two sentences to find the four. Yeah. 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 So denial is basically, I don't have a problem. Down plan is it's really not that bad. Duplicity is being two faced. And then destruction is that whole idea of, you know, God is not mocked. Whatever someone sows, that will he also reap. If you sow according to the flesh, you'll from the flesh reap corruption. Like, Eventually, it's going to catch up to you, right? Um, unless someone chooses to kind of get off the crazy train and confess for the Lord and get real. So I know in my life, I saw myself doing many of these things, and it's easy to fall into it. Um, did, you, did you see yourself falling into any of those? Yeah. So, again, gosh, you know, because I carried mine for so long, Josh— I live mostly in destruction. Um, mm. You know, um, I couldn't deny a problem. I've been walking with it for, you know, four decades. You mm. know, I, I couldn't deny it. It was right there in front of me. Um, so, um, I, man, you know, I, probably, I guess, the, the duplicity of it, um, you know, that I kind of, you know, so really, I lived in duplicity. Let me just say that mm-hmm. uh, I didn't. I didn't. Destruction came, yes, but um, again, if you were to ask the people that were closest to me, they would they would tell you again they were the most shocked that when all this came out because you know I'd had mm-hmm. years to train at being a very skilled liar, and uh, I, I knew how to cover my tracks well. I knew how to. Um, you know, hide my own shame and my own guilt that I would feel. I mean, you know, again, I, I was at that time I'd been in ministry for uh, 30, you know, two years or so. And, uh, um, I, you know, I could preach a sermon on Sunday and then, you know, that afternoon look at porn. And what I would do is, uh, you know, I could deny, you know, the seriousness of it. But what I would do is like, you know, it's like, as I'm writing my sermon, I'm confessing my sin, confessing my sin, confessing my sin. Uh, but it was not repentance. 
Mm. You know, it, it was confession in that, Lord, yeah, I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. But again, the mindset of repentance is to turn from it. So yeah. by my very job, you know, and, and let's again face it, for most of your listeners, they're not going to have to worry so much about this. But as a pastor, you know, a minister of the gospel, our character is our job description. Sure. You know, and um, and so uh, my my duplicitousness uh, was built around my ability to play mind games in such a way not to minimize or deny, to deny, but to um, create paths by which I could continue in my sin while at the same time perform my duties. And Josh, I, again, just to be, you know, we're going to be honest on this podcast, you know, it was the most exhausting 40 plus years of my life, um, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to cover your sin. And, and so I think about it in two ways too. A God was very gracious in the sense of, I think he gave me plenty of time to be honest and open and do what I needed to do to bring this to the light so I could get healing and in some ways protect my wife and my kids from my sin. So there's the graciousness there. And I think that it happened when they were adults you know, that some would say that's a good thing. That's a bad thing. Cause they knew exactly what their daddy had done, who was also their pastor. Mm. But at the same time, um, God knew the right time for this to be made public in a way that as awful as it was, I think now six years later, God is getting the maximum glory for it in his timing. And again, that was not that he overlooked my sin or excused my sin, but, uh, God had a plan that, you know, one day I'd be sitting across from a man talking about this to the glory of God that might give them some hope that no matter what their age or what, no matter what their struggle, that if they will come clean, that God can bring healing and, and redemption and beauty from the ashes. So anyway, well, that, that was a, a tangent. Sorry, I just went on a rant. No, no, that was a good tangent. That was awesome, man. Um, so to the guy listening right now that might say, hey, my vice, whether it's, you know, sexual sin or it's drinking or, you know, I, I've talked with so many guys that substance abuse starts as, hey, you get prescribed a painkiller and then before you know it, you're hooked on it. And nobody knows. Yes. Or even something like it's an anger problem, whatever it is. But to the guy listening who might say, you know, it's really not that bad. I've got it under control. I just got to manage it. Um, what counsel would you give somebody like that? So, you know, uh, I've spoken at your church and others, and, I, and even in counseling, I say to men, if you ever feel the need to conceal, that's God's nudging to say, you need to reveal this. And part of mm-hmm. concealing, I think, is that denial part, you know, that minimizing of that sin. So the first times I start, making an excuse that says it's not that big of a deal. That is you concealing that, man, if I, if I'm acting as if it's no big deal, I need to go ask someone, is this, you know, I mean, we easily deceive ourselves. Right. And, and we can play mind games with ourselves because again, we don't want to come to the light. So if I feel the need to conceal it, to minimize it, I better go talk to someone to say, this is what I'm feeling. Am I feeling the right thing? <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. this is what I'm seeing, but am I seeing the right thing? And I, gosh, 
I, I can promise you probably 90% of the time people go, no, this, this is a bigger issue than what you think, but that's what we're afraid of hearing, isn't it? You know, yeah. we're afraid of being exposed. Like you've said at the very beginning, we're afraid of bringing this to the light because of how we feel people will look at us, what they will respond. But if we've created an environment in which confession is rewarded, then we may hopefully have seen patterns around us where people have revealed their sin as the man did at your church, where he's given grace and redemption and mercy and love. And um, he's commended for his openness. If we've created that kind of a culture, it should be easier for men to, instead of minimizing or concealing to go, you know, I say it's not a big deal. Well, why would I even say if it's not a big, you know, if it's not a big deal, I don't even have to tell myself that. Right, 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 right. So right. Why well, am I trying to justify it if it's not exactly. a big deal? Exactly. So yeah. if someone says, man, you know, if I'm if I'm driving home from work and going, you know, I mean, my anger's not that big of a deal. Why am I even having that thought? That's not from the Lord. Mm. Yeah. So I think, yeah. again, that feeling to conceal, to minimize, to deny is that, nudge of the spirit of God that says, man, you got to go reveal this to somebody, talk to somebody, yeah. let someone on yeah. the outside say to you, it's not that big of a deal. Sure. So, Hey, what practical steps would you counsel a guy who's listening that might be getting honest with himself just right about now and saying, man, you're right. I need freedom over this vice. I don't know where to start. What do I do? What's, what's my next step to pursue freedom over this vice? Yeah. Um, Obviously, I, I think, you know, the first thing to do is go talk to someone. Um, hmm. And for men, uh, I, you know, and some will disagree with me, but this is just may not be the first person to talk to is your wife. Yeah. Uh, yeah that's and, and, and again, it's not that you're trying to deny, hide from your wife, but um, there's there's a way in which we need to approach our wives that I think comes after we've revealed it to another godly man who, mm. um, you know, can do that uh, and then maybe go with us to our wives and, and things. Um, man, you know, again, uh, revelation brings a lot of emotion and mm. it brings uh, a lot of, uh, you know, just it can bring heartache. It can, it can bring things. And, um, to, to have talked with someone and spoken with someone about something I've gone through and then go to my wife, to, to my, my girlfriend or to my husband, if it's a woman that's struggling with some area, but you know, we're talking specifically about, man, I think, I think it's good to have godly, a godly brother praying with us, encouraging us, maybe even helping us work through not to, again, uh, come up with the best way in sense to make me look in the best light, but yeah. you know, man, two are better than one. Right. And yeah. uh, it's yeah, just yeah. good to, to have that brother in, in a comrade in arms who kind of will go in battle and he may not even go with you to go talk to your wife, but man, to know he's praying for me, maybe he's helped me to work through how I'm going to approach my wife, giving me some godly wisdom. Uh, and again, that may be a pastor, um, it could be, uh, you know, a, a life group leader. It could be uh, an elder. Uh, it could be just a buddy. But I think it's, you know, somebody that needs to have wisdom and uh, a good walk with God that we can go to. So that'd be my first step. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say to that, like, um, 
I'm trying to remember the quote. You don't have to tell everybody everything, but you need to have at least one person you can tell everything to. Yeah, yeah. I probably butchered that quote. Yeah, but. well, uh, my friend Isaac, you know, who he says that you know you have to tell everybody everything, okay. but you got to tell someone everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what and uh, so yeah. yeah, who is that person? You know, again, for me, it was my 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 counselor, um, and yeah. um, his name's John, and and John was um, so so skillful and um <laughs> he, he could he was like a scalpel you know i mean when he needed to yeah. cut he he cut sometimes it was very shallow cut other times it was incredibly deep but boy he could handle that scalpel really really well and it really mm. to know that i had that man uh, walking with me and and helping me to be true to myself you know to uh yeah. not to uh, again, minimize to deny, uh, but to really, you know, call things what they really were to see things from an outside perspective, having that man meant, meant the world to me. It's, it's why I'm, we're having this conversation now. So yeah, I think that first step, you know, obviously they're going to talk to God, but isn't it interesting that first John one says, confess your sins to God. He's faithful and just to forgive us. But then James five, it says also to confess your sins one to another. Mm. And uh, yeah. there's just something about looking at another person and actually saying, here's where I'm struggling. Here's where I'm hurting. Um, there, there's something healing about that as well. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Well, uh, how would, how would the gospel speak to the guy right now who is entangled in a sin and he doesn't think he can ever be free from it. And he's maybe so ashamed he's never even brought it before the Lord. What would you say to him about that? What does the gospel say about that? How does what was what is Jesus's posture towards the guy that feels so ashamed? It feels so broken. It feels just absolutely unqualified to even pray a prayer. You mean like I was? <laughs> yeah, what would Mike Lee say uh, when he was in that position? Um, so, Josh, uh, for the probably those first three months, uh, I lived in the Psalms and I lived in the Gospels. And the mm -hmm. reason I lived in the Psalms is because many of them were written by David. And, you know, uh, David experienced the highs and the lows of walking with God, right? And, uh, and was a sinner. And specifically Psalm 32, Psalm 51, and Psalm 103. Those are the, the repentant Psalms. Um, mm. And uh, Psalm 103 specifically spoke to me. You know, this is the one where in verse 12 there it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the father has compassion on those who love him. It's It, it, was, it was an amazingly important uh, psalm to me, but so were Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. But then I read the Gospels as well because I needed to be reminded of how did Jesus treat sinners? How, how did mm -hmm. Jesus welcome sinners? How, how did Jesus respond to the woman at the well? You know, how, how did Jesus respond to um, Peter's denial of him three times? And, um, you know, and Jesus never minimized sin, but he welcomed sinners. And, and he invited them into his presence and he always offered them, even, you know, Judas on, on the day, night that Judas betrayed the Lord, he still offered Judas a path if Judas had taken it to not go down a destructive path. And 
um, you know, I mean, the prodigal son and the lost coin and the lost sheep, you know, remind us that when Jesus was dining with uh, tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners and the Pharisees were angry at him for, you know, doing that, he told the lost sheep, the lost coin and, and the lost son story from that because he wanted to remind these who are supposedly inside with with God that there's room for more to come inside, but those people are dirty and and struggling and 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 don't look like us and don't talk like us and don't act like us, and yet they are welcome at this table. And so I, I would say to that person who's unworthy, don't let the church or let religious people be your mirror or the image of Jesus that you look into. Let the gospels remind you of who this one who said, I came to seek and to save the lost. I am the one that I, it's the sick who need the physician, not the well. I, I have come to take and draw people far from me to me. And again, you know, and you know, you, you know, this Josh, people say, man, if only I can know that God loved me, it, you know, that Jesus really loved me. How do, and, and he's given us the answer in Romans 5 eight that God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died mm. for us. He didn't die for the well. He died for the sick. And that's us. And yeah, let's face it. Some of our sins we would call spectacular. <laughs> you know, they, <laughs> there, there's some big ones out there. And I know all sin quotas, you know, sin. But man, let's face it. There, there are some things that, you know, the world just loves, as, or the Christian world especially, loves to label as spectacular sins. And yet, yeah. um, it's... <laughs> the display of spectacular sins only allows for the display of a spectacular savior who gives spectacular grace and spectacular mercy to the glory of God. And, you know, I think about Paul, what he said in first Timothy, the reason God Paul says saved him was that so one, no one could ever say they're too far from God. You wow. know, Paul says, if you want a poster child for the worst sinner, I know it was me. And yet if God can save me, there's not one of you out there who can say, I don't think he could ever save me. So what can the gospel do? The gospel tells us not how spectacular our sin is, but tells us how spectacular our savior is and how willing he is. It's not just that he's spectacular, but he comes to us. He pursues us. You know, for that person who's listening right now, right now, Jesus Christ is pursuing you. He is coming after you. He wants you. And man, don't let the Satan, don't let anyone else tell you anything different. Amen. Amen. Sorry, I get a little passionate about that. No, 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 man, that'll preach. <laughs> I love it. Man, that's good. Well, Mike, man, I appreciate it so much. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing uh, just so much wisdom about this and uh, really appreciate you, man. Thanks a lot. Hey, thanks, Josh. It's an honor to be with you as always. Appreciate your friendship and your love and uh, grateful for this book, man. Uh, if guys are out there listening, wondering if it's even worth the time to get it, man, get it and, and find a buddy to go with it, with you through it and let its truths really speak to you. But thanks, Josh. Thanks for listening to the Committed Masculinity Podcast. If you like what you've heard and you want more, 
Head over to Amazon and pick up your copy of the book, Committed, Biblical Masculinity. Please give this podcast a share, leave us a review, and tune in next time. Thanks again for listening.